Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. If you're enjoying our podcast or if you find it helpful, uh, please take a quick second to give us a like, or if you're watching this uh, on YouTube, or if you're a five-star rating, if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or other podcast service, we really appreciate it. Uh, so if you could do us a solid, that would be great. Thank you so much. And today on the show, we've got on a TV writer who got his start in reality television, producing a number of top-rated true crime series on Discovery. He was a fellow in the National Hispanic Media Coalition's Writers Program and the Fox Writers Intensive, and got his first staff writer position on the Fox series APB. He is also currently the vice chair of the Latino Writers Committee in the WGA. He is Jorge Rivera. Thanks for joining us today, Jorge. Hey, hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Um... Yeah, no, it's 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 great. But you you actually tick a number of boxes. Not that I'm mm-hmm. trying to <laughs> put you in a box, but that I think is a, a, would be really helpful for our listeners to hear about. And also, I think it would be very. There's a lot of topics that we can cover that I think are very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into all the the complicated, important stuff, um, let's just get started at the beginning. How yeah. did you first become interested in writing? Because your first jobs mm. in the industry were in reality television. You were a producer. Uh, yeah. But how did you decide, you know what? I really love writing and the, the process of writing and yeah. the creating pro- creative process. Sure. Um, well, it's a long story. I'll try not to make it boring. <laughs> no, 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 please. Uh, let's see. Like, well... You know, as far as back as I can remember, the first thing that really influenced me as a writer, it kind of influenced me before I even knew I wanted to write. Um, I was probably about six years old, and the the original Planet of the Apes was on television, like, late night, one night. And I was up late with uh, some cousins trying to, you know, it was on late, splashing water in my eyes to watch this thing because I was so riveted, you know, trying to stay awake. And... It really, really, that, that piece, that piece of science fiction, which is like really, really deeply layered with allegory uh, and social commentary, kind of really nailed me and stuck in my brain as a six-year-old boy. Um, it just, you know, the first impressions of that is the aesthetic of, you know, just the visual of it is just really stunning. But it really stuck with me, and I, I over. It's, it's like one of those things that you watch as a kid over and over again over years, and and every time you watch it, it, it kind of gives you something new, right? And then maybe at some point in my teens, I, I started paying attention to the credits, and you know, and paying attention to the idea that you know, people actually work on these things. You know, you, you, they're they're scripted. People just don't show up and just make up lines, and someone shoots them, right? Um, some, at some point in your young career, there's that realization. There's a job there, right? right? And uh, and as I started watching more science fiction, and because I even though I do a lot of crime, my my bigger bigger wheelhouse actually is genre, the science fiction stuff and fantasy. And I, I started watching more and more of it. Twilight Zone was a big thing that I really paid a lot of attention to. And one of the first writers that caught my attention, which was Rod Serling, and you know, his writing and his social commentary and his, you know, surprise endings were really, really powerful. And they really made an impression on me. And at some point, I went back and realized that Rod Sterling had actually written the screenplay for Planet of the Apes, which somehow I missed over, you know, multiple viewings until I started really paying attention to the credits. And if you watch that movie, it really plays out like a 90-minute Twilight Zone 
episode with surprise ending and, and all and all. So that really, really made a huge impression on me. And it made me realize that science fiction and fantasy when done well can really make some really powerful allegorical statements. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that is still to this day, you know, 20, 30 years later, however long that the math is, is really something that is just part of my DNA as a writer. And, um, you know, my holy grail and everything I write is to, is to have the same kind of impact that the Planet of the Apes had on me, on other people, but also just how a piece like that recontextualizes your perception of the world. You know, that surprise ending, you think it's one thing, but it becomes something right, else. And, right. then, and you have this explosion in your brain, right? And, and, and that's for me, something that I'm always chasing still in my writing. So that's where it started. Six mm-hmm. years old, six-year-old Jorge Rivera watching Planet of the Apes, trying to with his cousins trying to stay up like till midnight to finish the ending because he was so excited about it. It's periodically running into the bathroom to splash water in his eyes to stay awake. That's how it started. <laughs> uh-huh. That's the that was the germ. I mean, okay. there's more to the story between how where that you know there's more from that point to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that was the germ. And it's really, it's just really something that really is powerful and sticks in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So six year old Jorge Rivera is watching Planet of the Apes mm-hmm. diving into story and, and, and really kind of trying to figure out what, or, or seeing sort of what is possible uh, yeah. rather than, you know, at that age, like my son is seven and, you yeah. know, watches a lot of cartoons and things like that. So you're, you're really sort of diving into the, the whole uh, uh, story and creative aspect of and breaking it down and, and thinking about those types of things. So how did you go from there to mm-hmm. getting your first, what was your first job in the industry, writing or otherwise? Yeah. And how yeah. did you get from point that point to like, where yeah. did you go to school and what did you study? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, so I didn't really actually start writing in earnest till many, many years later. Um, you know, that Planet of the Apes experience was the, the, a germ that took many, a, you know, a seed that took a long time to sort of flower. It wasn't until 2005-ish or six, around, right around there, where I really started paying, really started to do it, actually do it. And at the time, I, I was actually a musician, I was scoring, music for short films and for indie films. I, I went to Berkeley College of Music for a couple of years. I played in bands in the 90s. My dad was a salsa musician. So my interest, my, my first real active creative interest was in music. Um, and so I played in a Latino rock band that toured the country and toured El Salvador. And wow. when that, when that, yeah, we were called Bay of Pigs. And we were a bunch <laughs> of Latino kids who were like doing like this, uh, grunge rock, Latin grunge rock. It was basically Black Sabbath meets Santana. Oh, wow. And yeah, so that was, that that musical experience led me to, the band broke up. I played many years in that band and the band broke up and then I started to get into film scoring. And then from film scoring, I met a lot of filmmakers, a couple of really good friends that I'm still very good friends with to this day. And I had an idea for, I had a dream about one of my my recording clients, who was a hip hop MC, who kind of had a very precarious lifestyle, and I was worried about him and had some anxiety. And in the dream, I dreamt about this person uh, accosting me as a cannibal and trying to eat me for dinner. 
And so the next day I woke up and I jotted down this idea about a cannibalistic serial killer. And that became a, a, the first thing I ever wrote officially with my two buddies who I'm, I'm still friends with called Rhyme Animal. And it was about a hip hop MC who happened to be a cannibalistic serial killer. And it started out as a, a short, a 20 minute short slash presentation pilot, which became a web series. So it was 2006, the year after YouTube launched, uh, I, I just started doing a lot of digital content, um, tons of it. And it was really, really exciting. Um, I, my, I was really a raw writer with a lot of energy, but not a lot of like academic skill running around writing and producing these web series for myself and with other people. I had a day job. I was a web programmer at a, at a digital security company making six figures and shooting and writing and shooting on the weekends and nights whenever I could with my friends. And around that time between 2006 and 2010 ish or 11, there was a big boom in that space. Everybody was doing web series. It was the first big wave. Um, and it was super exciting. There were all these brand new festivals that were sprouting around, sprouting up all over the country here in LA. Uh, but also a big one was in New York, the New York Television Festival, which is still in existence. And I, ha I remember having a very, very visceral experience being at the festival around 2010 or 11. And standing in this big auditorium with like hundreds of other creators and a lot of their work was being uh, screened in these theaters and there was a lot of energy. And I was just like, it, that's when it really hit me. I was like, wow. I love this. I love this environment. I love this energy. I love, you know, the effect that I can have on people like sitting in a theater and actually watching them respond to something that I produced, wrote and produced. And that was the beginning. So I did a lot of digital stuff um, for a few years. Eventually went back and got my master's degree at Long Island University, which mm -hmm. was had a television writing program called the TV Writer Studio, and it was uh, on the it was taught on the lot of Steiner Studio in Brooklyn. Okay. And Steiner Studio is where they shot um, Boardwalk Empire, mm. Damages. I think Gotham was set up there. Um, uh, a whole bunch of things. And in and, and films, a lot of films, like it was, you know, legit, you know, movie studio in the middle of Brooklyn. So our two years of spent of, you know, learning on that lot was basically, you know, on the job training, you know, uh, every time I walked on that lot, it was like walking into my future. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for two years, graduated and then decided I had to pull the trigger. And so I, came out here in 2014, um, which was really scary and exciting. Um, slept on a lot of couches for a year. I couldn't get anybody to hire me to do anything. You know, I sent out probably a hundred resumes. Like that same story that a lot of people tell, tell, you know, a lot of people tell the same story. Um, what year is it at this point? 2014, oh, 2014 that's burning right. through my savings, my then girlfriend, now wife, she was, we were just, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend at the time was still back in New York. And I made a promise to her that, that if nothing happened in the first year, zero, that I would just pack up and come back. Um, 
So a year goes by, I'm spending all my money. <laughs> I literally, I'm not kidding you. I literally had about a hundred dollars left in my bank account and I'm freaking out and I'm having the dark night of the soul that a lot, that a lot of people have. And I'm like, this is it. I, I, I screwed this up. I have to go back to New York. And a friend of mine who I had been, met with during that master's program had gotten me an interview at a, at a production company that did true crime. And I literally almost the day of you know, this, almost deciding to pack up, got a call, went in for this interview and, um, and got the job. And the job was basically as a researcher uh, on a true crime show. And what that entails is basically finding stories, vetting stories, fact checking, outreach to people, talent that are involved in the story, which could mean cops. It could be, it could be cops, prosecutors, lawyers, defense lawyers, blood spatter experts, psychologists, and the family members, and sometimes the, the, the killers themselves. So that was the beginning. And I was, you know, I wasn't getting, I wasn't paid very much, but I was, I was in the game, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, my, my cubicle was directly across from the office of the CEO of the company. So sitting there for a year was like, uh, not only was I learning from the job, but I was listening to a lot of his conversations. He had his door open all the time. I mean, when he wanted, when he, when he wanted privacy, he closed his door, sure. but like, but, but I was privy to a lot of just like, it, I was, I just remember being so, excited to be there and so blown away that I was in, like, I was making television and learning, you know, it was like, it was like, it was like, it was like, I couldn't have paid for a better education. Um, but, you know, that, that work is tough and I'll drill into that work a little bit deeper because that, you know, as after a while, the, the, glo- the, the shiny toy kind of lost some of its shine. Um, but somewhere along in there, I, I got into the Fox Writers Program and, uh, and, I, and I was staffed on APB. But for many years, I had, done, I had done that work, which was really, really, I don't know if I should go into that now, if you guys want, if you want to do that. Yeah, subject. no, absolutely. Um, so the true crime world was an incredible education. I eventually connected with a showrunner who took me under her wing and was super supportive and really interested in helping me grow as a producer. Um, Really taught me a lot, was very generous and moved me up the ladder rather quickly. So Fast forward to two or three years later, I, I've I had I produced about forty episodes of, of true crime television, worked on about seven seven different series. One of them was up for People's Choice Award. Another one was, was one of the highest rated premieres for a television for a true crime television show on on the ID network. And it was amazing. And it was an amazing education in learning how to write for crime. I wasn't writing. It was all non-writing producing gigs, but the construction of how, how we, how those stories are constructed basically, you basically, uh, you do what's called a four-year request to all of the law enforcement agencies involved in investigation and basically you acquire the case file, 
right? That's the big holy grail. You get this case file in the mail or digital sometimes. And that sometimes consists of thousands of pages of case file narrative, like all of the interviews they did, all the steps they took to figure out a murder. Um, and in there, there's also crime scene photos, which can be very gruesome. I've seen lots of dead bodies. <laughs> Autopsy, yeah, it's really gruesome. That's why that's that's why that's why I was you know mentioning that it, it kind of lost a little bit of its luster because you know you're dealing with a lot of gruesome mm. you know material and you're dealing with someone a real human being's demise and the trauma that the, that that brings to the family. So it's highly emotional. And it could be really emotional for the producers that work in that field because you're really, you, you, I personally felt a lot of personal obligation to the families I was working with to, to tell their story correctly and not to sensationalize it. And sometimes, you know, this, you know, the, the sometimes there, there are forces within that process that want you to sensationalize it, but you know, it's really tough. So it's, there's a lot of stress there. Um, you know, but so this case file, you get this case file and, and, and you're, you're, tr you're weeding through sometimes years and years of, of investigative narrative and, and you really have to distill that into an hour. Sometimes it's 10 years worth of information and you have to distill that into an hour and you, it, and those shows are very, the ones on ID anyway, which are a little bit different from the ones on Netflix and HBO, the way they're constructed, but the ones on ID are often like classic procedurals you know there is a murder mystery up top you don't know who did it here are the players one of them probably is probably the killer uh, you know you have an act that's each spent on one red herring then at the end of that act that red herring is sort of like crossed off the list and you're met with a new red herring could it be this person that's the cliffhanger into the next act rinse and repeat for five acts until you get to the killer and the killer is usually a surprise you know, someone that you thought would never be that person that you met up top. And that's classic procedural storytelling, you right. know, like every cop show, you know, ever made follows that to some degree. So what an incredible education that was, right? But I wasn't writing. These were all non-writing producing gigs. And, you know, I came here to write. And so... Um, I've, you know, since then, as grateful of, as I am for that experience, I've been, I've been sort of rebooting and re and re-energizing my, my focus back on, on scripted. Um, but somewhere in that mix, I did the, I did the, um, Fox Writers Intensive and NMHC. I got staffed on AB, APB on Fox and, and Matt Nix and Trey Calloway were the showrunners. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were fantastic. I, um, it was simultaneously the most terrifying and most exciting thing I ever did. You know, it's like that moment when you finally get what you want after working for it for seven, eight, ten, whatever years, you know, right. ten years, whatever. You're like, holy fuck. So sorry, you probably keep that out. You're like, holy crap. You know, you 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 don't want to screw it up. So, but it was it was it was great. You know. Um, I co-wrote my episode with Matt, went out to, to Chicago to cover set and produce it. 
the thing about having done so much producing, like when I was in the true crime thing, I not only story produced, I was out on set, you mm-hmm. know, a lot, producing the recre- recreations. I was flying all over the country in doing the interviews, interviewing co- you know, cops and criminals and killers and families of the victims. So I had a lot of hands-on producing experience. So when I got to set, I was just like, I hit the ground running. You know, it was did that great. help when you were interviewing uh, after the Fox Writers Incentive? When you were meeting with showrunners, obviously they liked your writing because mm-hmm. you got the showrunner meeting. But did yeah. it help that you had produced a lot of television? Did, yeah. they, did they like that? Was that a plus? Yes, yes, for sure, definitely. I, I you know, I, I distinctly remember in, in several meetings and actually during the APB interview, where we talked about my production background and mm-hmm. i think that was a big plus for matt and, and trey because they didn't need to worry about that part so much and i really i think i did really well on set i actually remember solving some big pro you know we had a big even a big production like that will have mishaps you know as well oiled of a machine it as it is there was we so my so the show was about it was a it was a great it was actually the, it was the perfect show for me because it was a mixture of both my loves, which was crime and genre. You mm-hmm. know, it was a sci-fi cop show, basically, you know, five minutes in the future, essentially Elon Musk solving crimes with, right. a, hard, with a hard-nosed Latina cop, right? Um, so imagine Elon Musk creating all these like ingenious technological solutions for these low-tech crimes. Like how do you catch a bank robber using a robot, you know, mm-hmm. basically. And in my episode, we had a robot that played very significantly in the story. And it was this, you know, little robot the size of like a small dog. It basically was kind of main characters, um, Gideon's uh, basically pet robot. And the thing died <laughs> after we, you know, the first day on set. Oh, the actual robot that you were using. Yeah. Oh. yeah, the actual robot. It was it was a remote control robot right. that we built as a prop. Hmm. And they did a great job. It was beautiful. But there was a big scene where he it snowed. We weren't expecting it to snow. It was a big scene out out exterior shot of at at, at Gideon Reeves's house. And the robot's supposed to be, you know, traveling across the lawn, but there's all this snow on the ground. And somehow, as beautifully as designed as this thing was, there was no covering on the undercarriage. Oh. And so all of, its, all of its guts were sort of exposed. exposed yeah. Circuitry was exposed. And of course, after you know, shooting with it for, with, for, for like an hour, it, it died. It wouldn't move anymore because it, the, it, everything got wet inside. So we shot what we could with it that day, but we had a couple major scenes the next day that we, we or, or that were still scheduled. And we were like, we were like, what are we gonna do? You know, we were thinking about ways of writing the thing out, even though like it played so kind of significantly in the storyline. Um, but production George put his hat on and his production cap, thinking cap on. And there was, uh, there was some. There was a stage we 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 built back. 
there was a set we built back in the stages that was supposed to match a part of the house that we were just at. That was a house we rented. Mm-hmm. And we were out of there the, that, that we only had one day there. And, but I, we, we just rewrote the scenes and, and, and we used the set part of the set that we had built and we, instead of doing remote control, we attached like fishing wire to the thing and, <laughs> and, and made it move that way. But like, you know, like there's so much going on. No one's thinking about the solve, but I, I, I was able to sort of get the scenes we needed on that set. And right. I think it saved us a bunch of money. And, and, you know, instead of coming back and reshooting weeks later. So that, you know, that, I mean, it sounds like a small thing, but it was a big thing at the time because it was like, oh, great. You know, and, and, and I just got like the second, I got a second unit. I took, I took initiative and just got a second unit and just went to our, you know, our production manager at the time and just said, listen, this is what we're going to do. Like, you know, while, while the, while the main thing, while the main train was still running down the track, mm-hmm. I, I, I got this second little mini train going on the side to do these pickups and I just ran, went, ran with it and, and we got the shots and it was great. Right. And it well, and, and that seems to be the thing that showrunners love more than anything is problem solvers. Because yeah. as a showrunner, all you deal with all day is problems. Yeah. And so anyone who can take some of that stuff off your plate and yeah. solve problems without having to yes. take a lot you of your be, time. Yeah, you don't want to be the person that is just identifying problems. Right. Because that's annoying. You want to be the person... That, identifying the problems, but also bringing solutions. Right. And anticipating. That's even better, looking, yeah. Yeah, looking ahead and like really looking around corners and, and just making sure, you know, that that your, your, whatever's in your purview is being taken care of. Like anything you can do to reduce the stress and anxiety of a showrunner who's got a billion things going on at mm-hmm. once. They can hand you something, a piece of story, a scene, a production issue that if they can hand off to you and you can just run with it and you, and, and they know you're going to come back with what they need and it just fits right into the machinery without any issues. Right. Is gold. Yeah. 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 They love that. That's the job. Right. No, you're absolutely. There, you're there to, you're there to um, facilitate the showrunner's vision and, and what he has, you know, what he has planned for the sh- for the show. Yeah, both on the page and when you get out there yeah, on set. Yeah, yeah. Or in the editing room, even. Yeah. yeah. At every stage. Yeah. 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 Um, and did it help that you, as a producer, did it help? I'm assuming you were involved in the post process on both the true crime stuff and on APB, correct? Um, let's see a little bit on APB. Mm-hmm. There were sound mixes and stuff. Uh, I, I did, you know, I gave notes on cuts and a lot of that was done, um, after my, my, my contract was over or near the end. So mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of, I wasn't post wise. I wasn't really at every touch point, but gotcha. it, uh, enough. Mm-hmm. I definitely gave a lot of notes. There were definitely, I definitely, there were definitely some cuts that I gave notes on that were really important. There were, there were some s- scenes and cuts that I knew we had better versions of, mm-hmm. you know, that we got. And there's no way you could do that without being on set. Right. And, and, and honestly, very little in, the tr- in terms of post and the true crime. That's probably oh, okay. the one, th- the one piece I wasn't very involved with again, watching cuts, giving notes on cuts. Right. 
um, but yeah, not it, but not but not like spending hours in a in a room in an editing editing bay. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting how in in both, well, in, in basically all areas, in features, in in post, I mean, features in television, and even like television branches, often in terms of reality and scripted. The role of the producer is so amorphous. It's like different in every section, in every yeah. genre. It's it's very, very yeah. different. My wife is a yeah. story producer, <clears throat> excuse me, in reality, and she spends most of her time with editors working yeah. on cuts and things like that. Right. Right. So less in right. sort of production aspect. Like she doesn't deal much with production. So yeah. definitely interesting. Yeah. Um but you were talking about uh the your your job and, and how you got on APB from the Fox Writers Intensive. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things looking back on your time on APB as your your first writer's room? What are some mm -hmm. of the things that you learned that you would either change or that you will carry forward uh, from your first yeah. go? Yeah. In terms of what took place in the room. Yeah, just sort of in general, yeah. your time on, on APB, staffing for the first time, what are things that you carry with you onto the next show that you, you know, yeah. I wish you had known or things that you now know that you will absolutely yeah. found invaluable? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Well, you know, I was so anxious to do well on my mm -hmm. first gig. Um, so to some degree, I was a bundle of nerves. <laughs> And that took it took a long that took a few weeks to unravel. So I think that is one of the most important things is to relax and enjoy it, and not beat yourself up. You know, you if as a staff writer, um, you know, I guess the expectations are low. The bar is set low for you already, so you don't have to worry. I think you have to go in and enjoy it. And, and anything that you give above that bar <laughs> is a is a plus, but but I say that only to get people to relax because I was really it was exciting, but I was just like well, you know, just waiting. I thought I was going to get fired like every other day. I was like, I'm getting fired today, and not because I did anything wrong, but just because I was self conscious and I just thought I was fucking up. So I think the the main thing is to relax. The second thing is to not be um, completely silent and mm -hmm. not be completely chatterbox, right? Like it, that's the thing that you really, really need to learn and calibrate as soon as you can is reading the room and knowing, you know, where your voice fits in because every room is different, but there, but there is a, there is a hierarchy right? Mm -hmm. There are your upper levels who've been doing it for, you know, much longer than you. Um, but they also want you to contribute. You're, that's what you're there for. So it's a tricky thing to learn, right? You really don't want to be, you don't want to be that, that, that staff writer that never says anything because that's a, that's a good way to get fired. Sure. That's a good way to not be asked back. You don't want that. You, you don't want to be the person who overcompensates and tries to talk over everyone and be or do way the, too much, way too much or, or, or reinvent the show or give the show your vision. This is how I think it should be. You know, you don't want to be any of those things. 
you really want to be as supportive of the conversation that's happening at the time and bring ideas that supports that, that, that conversation. That's the most important thing, I think. Um, and then find ways to make yourself invaluable. You know, do all the things that no one else wants to do or that no one else is doing. It, I guess, don't, yeah, like for example, doing the extra research, like, you know, there's a story point, like the, the APB was really technology and, have, and research heavy because we were constantly trying to find things that were supported the, sh the stories in the show because our show was five minutes in the future. Like we couldn't make a, a, a laser that gun that didn't exist, right? It had to right. be some kind of engineering that was on the cusp of reality, right. you know, stuff that DARPA is working on. So there was tons of research involved. Right. And at one point I kind of got dubbed the research guy because I, I had done that for a living. And I kept a whole Dropbox of all these different technology engineering articles by, by category. Like you can go to the Dropbox and if, and you can, and it was searchable, you know, I've got a, story where I'm dealing with an arsonist. What are some things that can be used against arson? So I had a folder on arson and all these technologies mm. that you could use to put out fires. And so I was the research guy and that made me sort of valuable sure. to the show in a way that no one else was doing to the degree I was doing it. So that was a way that made me really, really indispensable and, and, and valuable. It could be something like that, or it could be, you know, getting up on the board and being the person that writes on the board. I have terrible handwriting. So if I did that, it would actually probably work against me. But I, I, but I did it. You know, I did it and, and I was self-conscious about it because my handwriting is terrible. But, you know, those kinds of things, you know. Um, and, I, and I think the most, another big important thing is to be a team player and to be positive and constructive, right? You don't want to be a doctor, no. I hate this, I hate that, without constructive solves. You wanna be productive and you wanna be, have good energy because you know, you're spending 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day sometimes in a room with 10 other people and there's a lot of, sometimes there's egos and you wanna be, you wanna be a, a, a positive, constructive, valuable contribution to that room without stepping on anybody's toes. Right. No, that's great. Yeah. And jumping, taking one step back because you were in a couple fellowships. Yeah. I did want to, to dive into that a little bit. Um, first off, what, I mean, we, we, there's lots of different fellowships, obviously, whether yeah. it's, uh, the Fox writers intensive, although I don't know if that happened this year. Uh, NBC writers on oh. the verge and ABC yeah. and all this and other kind of stuff. What, for those maybe who who aren't as familiar with the fellowships, we'll take it even further. Step. Sure. Maybe yeah. you could explain to some of the listeners what these fellowships are sure. and, and what their mission is. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about how to get in, in in just a minute. But maybe you could explain a little bit about what yeah. these fellowships are and, and what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> there's so many of them now, but I think the main ones that are the most valuable in my mind are the ones that are run by the networks in the studios. So you named a lot of them. 
Fox is now part of Disney, so it, it, it it's just a Disney writing fellowship. Right, the ABC. So this, yeah, ABC Disney. Yeah. So there's ABC Disney. There's NMHC. There's HBO, Nickelodeon, CBS, NBC, NBC Writers on the Verge. Mm-hmm. I know I'm missing something. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Yeah, that's right. I get Sundance. that Warner Brothers and CBS. Yeah. 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 Um, those are the main ones. There's some other ones. Sundance. Mm-hmm. And they're all the same, but they're all different, right? They all share similar missions, uh, but go about them slightly differently. And the mission is basically to, to, to create a pipeline for writers onto their shows like CBS will, will mostly want to staff CBS shows and ABC will want to staff ABC shows and so on and so on. And the way they work is they open up their submissions, you know, thousands of people submit, they have a, a semi-finalist round, a finalist round, and then they pick their 10 writers or so every year. And they have different varying degrees of time that they're all spent, that they all run. Like ABC is a year, ABC Disney is a year long program. Mm-hmm. And Which they you actually get paid pay, for it. Yeah. Yeah. They pay you a salary, like 50, it used to be like 50 grand. It might've gone up. Uh, and you're a Disney employee for a year. And um, NBC is like three months. Fox at the time was three months. NMHC is like five weeks. So different lengths, but basically, you're writing a couple of pilots, a pilot or two during that time, depending on the length. So you're writing new material, but you're also getting trained on how to network, how to take a meeting, how to be in a room. You know, there are meet and greets with showrunners and meet and greets with executives and meet and greets with represent, represent, you know, reps, agents and managers. And they're basically grooming you to be successful <clears throat> in television. And so the way they work is staffing season happens and you, they send out your material to all of the shows that you might be good for. When I was in Fox, I, I met on about four different shows. And um, they send your samples out and they get you these showrunner meetings and with the hopes that you'll get staffed most of the time people get staffed. Not everyone gets staffed their first time around. It just, there's usually, there's usually like maybe six opportunities and there's usually like 10 or 12 people in the program at the Mm -hmm. time. Right. And so the, the way it works is that you are a free writer to the budget of the show because the program is subsidizing your salary. So for a showrunner, it's just another body in the room that they don't have to pay for. So it's really attractive to them. So pros and cons. <laughs> pros are, you know, it, you, you can get your first break and it's great. And you're off to the races. And some people get staffed on a show that goes for three or four seasons mm-hmm. and it launches their careers. And there's tons of those stories. And, but, but the cons are that, in, you know, sometimes people, there's a stigma or you, you can be, depending on the culture of the room, be looked at as, oh, the free writer, they got in here as a freebie. But, but the thing is, is that you worked your ass off to get there and you wrote an amazing script that got you into the program in the first place. So you deserve to be there. 
So the cons are it can be sometimes people, you know, get into a room where there's some maybe toxic elements that don't really appreciate how you got there. <clears throat> that wasn't my case. I had a great experience. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of debate. I see a lot of debate often on social media, whether the, the fellowships are good or bad. And I think that it's just like everything else in the world. Like there are pros and cons, you know, and, and, you, and some people have had amazing experiences and some people have not had as good as experience. But, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, they're all worth trying to do because even if you don't get in, putting yourself on a schedule to write a couple of new pieces of material every year that you would submit to those fellowships, you should be doing that anyway. So if you have the material, why not? Mm-hmm. It's not if you're already writing the material, you should be writing at least one or two pieces easily every year, minimum. If you're already doing that, why not, why not submit them? You know, because the applications all ask similar things. So you could have the, you know, a core base of material, your, 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 your samples and your resume and your bio, and they all ask for essays. You know, you can have that package every year and sort of adjust accordingly to each application specific differences, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm a fan. Well, it's also, especially now touching on what you just said, uh, most of them are switching over from uh, specs yeah. to original material, yeah. which is very helpful. Yeah. So you don't have to go out of your way necessarily to write a brand yeah. new spec uh, episode of an existing TV series every year or two to yeah. freshen up your fellowship. You can just use the original pilots you've already written yeah. for most of them. Yeah. That's true. Um, and I'm actually a little bit sad about that, to be honest. I, I think spec writing is a great exercise. Mm-hmm. And that is, is, I think, part of the growth of a young writer. I think every person, everyone who aspires to be a, a writer should do a couple, like, I don't know how many, I don't know what the minimum is, but I, I, I probably did about four specs Four, uh, four or five specs before mm-hmm. I started doing original material because back when I was applying that's all they were asking right I think and the I, problem it, with specs though and not that I disagree with you I agree 100% yeah. that it benefits writers especially sure. when you're trying to mimic someone else's voice and, and style and, and structure to spec something to write a spec episode yeah. of an existing show I think yeah. part of the problem though was with with the fellowships is that Every couple of years, you had to write a new one. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah. everyone was trying to pick a show, not necessarily the show that they wanted to spec, but one mm-hmm. that was hot, one that they felt uh, would continue on so they didn't have to write a new one next year. It's mm-hmm. not like, oh, I really love APB. I want to spec APB. Yeah. I'm not going to do yeah. that because it's a pilot, because it's a, it's a new series. It may not come back yeah. next year. I might have to write another one next year. So even though yeah. I love that show and the concept, I'm not going to spec that show. To me... Yeah that was, was, I think, part of the problem for some of these writers. They're specking things that they think the, that would benefit their career, not something that they necessarily were as sure. close to the material. The, the, shelf, life, the shelf life of a spec is, can be very short. Sure. I get that. But my sort of like, you know, tough love writing advice is that you should be writing a new one every year anyway. Right. No, I got you. 
You know, I, I, I don't know. I think, look, you don't want to write specs forever, but I think that there's something that you learn from writing specs that you don't write, learn writing your own material. Like there's, I learned a lot. I learned about structure. I learned about voice. I learned about how to break down scripts. I, I feel like that afforded me a lot of muscles that, that if I didn't do, had done them, done that work, I probably would be a different writer. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The job is writing someone else's show. Sure. Mostly until you have your own show. Like if ever, if ever, right. Yeah. Like when I was on APB, I wasn't writing Jorge Rivera's APB. Mm-hmm. I was writing Matt Nix and Trey Calloway's APB. So I was basic, you know, that's the job. And so there's a certain skill set that that entails. And I think you know, this, again, this is another Twitter debate, spec or not spec. I think every young writer should write, you know, three or four specs, at least in, in their lifetime. Sure. Just because it's, it's you, you have no idea what you're not learning, you know, if right. you don't do it. That was, that. let me tell you this. I think that was the greatest leap for me as a writer was not understanding what I didn't know. And and discovering what I didn't know about craft. The Dunning-Kruger effect, right? <laughs> What's that? The Dunning, isn't that what it's called? The Dunning-Kruger effect? Sort I guess. Not I knowing what you don't know. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah so exactly. The, you know, the people that are on the lower intelligence, not saying you were, but you right, know, in general, right, who are right, less yeah, knowledgeable yes. about something, think that they're the most knowledgeable about something because exactly. they don't know what they don't know. Exactly. When I was writing, when I was writing digital web series, I was loving it. There were no, it was no one to tell me there were no gatekeepers, no one to tell me I was doing it wrong. I just wrote something, and if I could put together a crew and feed them, I get sh- it got shot, and it went up on the web, and, and millions of people watched it, and I felt really good about myself. Mm-hmm. But when I started writing, applying to the fellowships and writing spe- you know, the specs that I needed to write, I wasn't placing. I was getting crickets for years. I applied for years. And then you know, I started seeking out i started trying to figure out why i wasn't doing well and i i actually started i i, I connect with with uh, jen grassanti who mm-hmm. i'm still really good friends with i love her dearly she's a great human being and really smart um so maybe i'm doing a little advertising for her right now but like i i yeah i uh i reached out to her and i i worked on a couple specs with her one-on-one and it was a little you know it cost some money but it was one of the greatest it was probably the best thing i ever did for my writing as it was the one of the best educational experiences i ever had because here was someone who really knew what they were talking about telling me i didn't know what i was talking about (laughs) (laughs) and and showed me how what i needed what needed to be on the page you know television is very has a very specific structure no matter whether it's broadcast or you know streaming you know there are still some things that need to be on the page and i was not aware of those things at all i wrote some really terrible specs my first time a couple times out but every one i did with jen 
I started to anticipate what she was, the notes that mm. she was going to give me. She's, mm -hmm. I was started re realizing, oh, I've got to do this on page 10. I've got to make my audience empathize with my character, main character right as soon as I can. They have to understand the goal. They have to, there's got to be stakes, like real basic stuff that sounds like 101. But I wasn't doing all that stuff. And, and now it's so ingrained in my brain that I don't have to think about it. And that's, partly what you get from writing specs but also i guess it's what i'm trying to get at is also if you really want to do this you really have to work on your craft and, and really understand where your shortcomings are mm -hmm. where your blind spots are and work on them and you need real feedback so that means either working with someone like jen or taking a class or reading a book or joining a writer's group of people who are better than you or writing specs and breaking them down or some combination of all those things. You know, you can't really write in a vacuum and I was writing in a vacuum in the early days. So that's my long winded <laughs> advice to writers. You know, I think the, the formula for success, I think in general mm -hmm. kind of falls into a couple buckets. It's, you know, and the first one is craft. No one, no one's going to hire you if you're if you don't know what you're doing on the page. You don't know how to break story, construct story, write story, right? Dialogue structure. The you know the other pieces are, you know, I think you. No one wants to work with a, a jerk, so you kind of have to be you know be your best self. I think it's really important. It's just really obvious stuff, but like I see a lot of people operating outside of these rules, like craft and just being a good human being are two things that are really important. Like I personally would rather work with someone who is not a good writer, but a genuinely awesome human being. Like if you have two writers, right? Mm -hmm. And they're nearly the same level of writing ability. Maybe one is, a, is better. In, but they're maybe all right let's say that other one is a genius but they're a, a jerk and you have someone who's really competent but a really good human being i'd rather work with that person every showrunner i've ever spoken to said the exact same thing yeah every single one yeah because as especially as a, a, a newer writer when you're starting out you're going to get rewritten by upper yeah. levels above you anyway mm -hmm. so they're not as concerned i mean obviously you have to be competent uh, they yeah. wouldn't have met you if you weren't, they didn't feel you were a competent, you know, a good writer. But ultimately, it's the other things that set you apart, you know. So, yeah, I mean, 100%, nobody wants to yeah. work with a jerk, period, no matter how yeah. good of a writer you are. Yeah. I mean, it happens, but, you know, there are some people we've known over the years who have been sort of like the spotlight has been put on over the, but sure. where they are now. Sure. But you know, I think in general, human beings want to work with good people and they want to, and they want to, they want to have fun. Like you want the job to be fun. It's so stressful as it is lots of money on the table in a production. Mm -hmm. So, you know, lots of, you know, different moving parts and a lot of stakeholders. So there's a lot of pressure. Right. But you and also so you wonder, want to make it fun. You also wonder if those people that became, that came out, you know, that were exposed as not very good human beings, you wonder if they, because, you know, they come, they're exposed and they're usually upper level at that point. You wonder if they 
sort of develop these tendencies. Like at the beginning, they were hiding it better. They were more diplomatic. Or if it's something that the culture obviously yeah. was different when they were coming up, possibly because they've been in for 20 years or whatever, the cultures change. And or, you know, some combination thereof, um, you know, you're masking it or developing really bad tendencies or again coming from a different yeah. time period but given I mean, a choice with a with a newer writer yeah pretty much every showrunner i know would pick someone who is not as talented but a better someone that they could want to be around rather yeah. than someone yeah. that they just yeah. don't think they want to be around yeah. even if they're a much better writer yeah i think he's there's a baseline level of craft you have to have sure sure first like no one's gonna hire you if you can't write right <laughs> But you know, assuming you're 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 a decent writer, you're more likely to get hired if you're also a decent human being. Right. And as you had shown in uh, in terms of your background, if you have something else to offer, like yeah. your production background, I'm sure was a big help. Yeah. So that yeah. that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, um, now sure. talking about getting into fellowships, what are some of the the because you actually had mentioned yeah. you you you. Um, studied with Jen Grisanti. And so I'm sure she gave you some advice. She actually runs what CBS? Is she on CBS? NBC, NBC, NBC. NBC. She yeah. runs NBC. She's, um, she's like the, like, I don't know if she runs it. She's like every, 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 every fellowship has like the writing mentor that right. teaches the class. Oh, okay. That's what she is. Yeah. I know she's involved in one of the, the fellowships. Yeah. yeah that's right. Carol Kirshner runs CBS. Yep. Um, Carol's a friend of the show. Uh, I don't know how yep. I completely didn't think about that. Um, so, but you worked with Jen and mm -hmm. she is, heavily involved with NBC Writers on the Verge. Yeah. You got into the Fox Writers Intensive. Yeah. What are some of these tips that she gave to you or that you learned sure. that can help uh, the listeners get yeah. into these writing fellowships? Sure, absolutely. I, I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> um, well, one year, one, the first year I placed in one of the fellowships, I think I was like a semifinalist in ABC. A, a friend gave me really good advice and she was like, you're now, since you placed as a semifinalist, you are now sort of on their radar. Uh, you're on the radar of all of them now, all of the fellowships. Oh, so they trade notes. They trade notes, they oh, track okay. them, yeah. They, they talk, they cross-pollinate information. Gotcha. And so she's like, you should reach out to all of the, whoever you can at, at the fellowships, the administrators, the people that run them and see if they'll meet you for coffee. And I did, I met with Carol, I met with Jen, I met with, well, I was working already with Jen. Um, Victor Bowie at the time was at ABC. I'm, you know, so I was meeting with everyone and I asked them what, uh, that exact question, mm -hmm. what are you looking for? What's a great application? And um, to, some, to my surprise, the, the, the thing that a lot of people said was, I think, obviously, it's the writing has to be good sure. of a certain quality. So again, it's always about craft, like always be working on your craft. I still, to this day, take classes. I, you know, Script Anatomy is another great place to take courses. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've taken like two or three of them over the course of the pandemic, you know. Right. Tanya so Bacharia, also a good friend of the show. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, she's great. Um, you know, so that never ends. I'm, I'm still breaking down scripts. You know, I, if I had the time, I actually would write a spec still, you know, mm. for fun. Yeah. So anyway, craft. Um, most important thing, your script has to be good. Secondly, um, the essay. 
which can also be controversial. <laughs> you know, the, the most important thing about the essay that they ask you to write is, is, is to remember that it is a writing sample. People don't realize that, I don't mm -hmm. think, sometimes. It is a writing sample. They want you to tell a story. They don't want you to say, I grew up here, I went to this school, and I won this award. Right. They want you to say, I had this really interesting experience. Let me tell you about it in first person, in, in story, when I was growing up or, you know, in, in my hometown. That maybe was the thing that influenced me to write. But here's the story. And, and, and it's going to, and it's going to be moving in some way. And where I think it gets controversial sometimes that people sometimes think that they want you to talk, talk about the worst thing that ever happened to you and dive into like trauma porn, porn to sort of write a sob story. That's not true. If that's what you want to write by all means, but that's not true. Like basically they want you to tell a compelling story about yourself and it could be anything. It could be about the birth of your of your of a sibling. It could be you know when the experience you had when you graduated, or the first time you saw snow, like being you know coming from a different country that never had snow, or whatever it is. You know, just something moving, funny, interesting, compelling. Because guess what? That's what storytellers do, right? Right. That's what the job is: is 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 captivating your audience in some way. And that's what needs to be in that essay. And it needs to be your story. So that's really important. And, and here's the other thing that people don't realize. That that's the job. It's sort of like that essay is the job in a microcosm. And, and you know, it's basically when you're in a room, you're basically there to help break story. And any, anything you can contribute to story that comes from a personal space you know, if you're writing on a show, if you're writing on a sh like a show about family drama and you and you have a story to tell about something that happened in your family and it doesn't have to be trauma. It's not always about trauma. It could be a funny thing. Right. You know, you know, this is the weird thing that I did when I was a kid. That's what they want you to, to do in a room. They want to contribute in authentic ways to stories as you break them. And when you when you do interviews for, for um, shows for jobs again that essay is is an extension of that conversation because mm -hmm. when you're in, a, in, a, in a, taking a meeting you want to come in and tell interesting stories about yourself you know i think i should be on the show about this this comedy that takes place workplace comedy that takes place in a bar because my dad owned a bar when i was in jersey growing up in jersey city and this is the wacky thing that he did of often this is my experience that I had. If you can walk into a, a conversation, a showrunner meeting about a show that takes place in a bar with stories about a bar, guess what? Mm -hmm. You're probably going to get that job. So the essay is a version of that. So they want an interesting story. They want you to tell it in a story prose format and extra points if thematically the story you're telling in that essay ties into the theme of the script that you're writing, that you're oh, submitting, mm -hmm. extra points. For example, when I was applying to Fox, the one that got me, the, the combination of essay and script that got me into Fox was I submitted this thing about mermaids. 
It was a genre piece. It was scary. It was like in the Bermuda Triangle. It was like The Walking Dead, tone, tonally like The Walking Dead, but with mermaids out in the open huh. sea. And it was about the main character was dealing with themes of family separation. They, 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 in, the, in the story, that person, that character loses their mother uh, and, and father to, to some accident out in the open sea. And her journey is about reconnecting with them, finding them out in the open water with a cruise, like with a research ship. And so, and, and she's half mermaid, half human. And so my story was, again, this, this was a traumatic experience. I, I was telling a story about my mom's passing. She had died from cancer. And, and this script had, you know, I, I'm not a mermaid, <laughs> right? I, I, you know, mermaids don't exist, <laughs> right? But, but I was able to infuse that character with the experiences I was having, mm-hmm. I had had. You know, I was putting those feelings of what it, I was feeling about having lost my mother, which was painful. But also, you know, I grew up in Jersey City. Uh, when I was young, we moved from downtown Jersey City to Greenville. And basically in downtown was, uh, it was um, where all my cousins were. And it was a Puerto Rican neighborhood. And my parents wanted to put me in Catholic school for whatever reason. So <clears throat> they moved to Greenville, part of Jersey City, which is much more, it was much more Anglo. Hmm. So I had, I grew up with these sort of identity issues. Like where do I fit in? Like I was always the brownest kid in the room in school. And with, when I started visiting my cousins on the weekends, I was sort of under overnight kind of Anglicized. So to them, I wasn't, I was very Anglo culturally. So identity issues. So this main character had identity issues and they, they were dealing with the trauma or, or the, of losing a f- family member. Again, not everything has to be about trauma, but that's what I chose to write about. So it was a very powerful combination. Mm-hmm. I wrote about that. I told that story, that journey in my essay. And, and, and in the essay, I actually said, this experience is very much like the main character of my script. And this is why I chose to write it because I, I, a lot of my characters have these kind of issues. So it was like the one, two punch of personal story thematically tying in with my pilot. And it just really was a nice thematically, you know, congruent sort of like package. That's super important. And also what helps is if in that essay, you're able to identify shows on their slate that also thematically fall into in line with what you're saying. Gotcha. So it was like, here's my story. It's very much like my pilot thematically. And by the way, I really want to write for this show because it showcases a really strong female character mm-hmm. who's going through the similar things that my main character is going through. I think I really can contribute to a show like that. And I think those three things are the big sort of like, you know, it's still to this day, I think those are the things that really resonate with the application, people, people who read the applications, right? right a right. powerful story, personal story. Again, it's not, it doesn't have to be traumatic. It just has to be something moving in some way. It could be funny. And, 
you know, have that thematically tie in with your, with your piece and with your personal story and, and, and the shows that you want to write for, mm-hmm. because that's the, that's the other, that's the other part of it. They, they, you know, they want to know if that you're staffable, that you're right. going to be a success, right? That you're, that you already know yourself as a writer and you nobody know what kinds of shows you want to be on. You already know the shows on their roster, on their slate that you want to write for. And you know why? Because you know you have certain life experiences that you can contribute. You know, right? So you're making their job easy for them. Yeah, I think that is the winning combination. Okay, well, that's all good information. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of our listeners uh, like the listen to the podcast, especially for our uh, interviews with lit reps, managers, mm-hmm. agents. How did you get your first? agent or manager uh, uh i don't know if it had anything to do with the fellowship or where you got staff because i know yeah. people who gotten staff that don't have a rep and it took a while you know after they got their first job even after fellowship or after being a showrunner's assistant or a writer's assistant it took them after they got their first job to land any sort of rep so they were already yeah. working in the business yeah and and it wasn't still wasn't easy to get a rep so how did you get your first rep and do you have any I, advice for for those I got I got my rep listening to scripts and scribes. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I'm, I'm plugging everybody today. Nice. Everyone owes, owes me a check. Um, <laughs> it, it, that's partly true. Uh, so I got into the Fox Writers program, and uh, and I plug, I'm plugging another friend, Lee Jessup. I called G- Lee Jessup because mm-hmm. I, I was aware of her. She I met her at some screenwriting conferences yeah Lee's awesome her, she's awesome and yeah. I saw her speak and I was like I as soon as I got in well not as soon as I got in actually a couple of weeks went by and my I thought my phone was going to be ringing off the hook and nobody was calling me they did a big announcement in the trades my name mm. was in the trades nothing happened I called Lee started working with Lee and you know she actually did some version of this thing that I talked about with the essay you know, she, she helped me sort of dive into my personal life, my personal experiences to kind of craft my personal story in a way that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Like everyone thinks they, you know, every, it's hard, sometimes it's tough to look at your own life unless you think I've done extraordinary things and find it interesting. But everyone has an interesting story and yet they just don't realize it. And, and Lee helped me realize it. Like, for example... When I was in the Fox Writers Program, we all went around the table introducing ourselves on our first day. And the guy that went just before me told a story about being a Nigerian Nigerian prince and having been kidnapped and having been like held for ransom. And, and wow, you know, how do you follow that up? I, exactly. That's my point. That's what I was getting. I was like, how the how the hell am I gonna? God damn it! So you know, but. But I, but I told my story and it was still compelling. And so that's the thing. You, my, you know, she helped me mine my personal life. Again, this is a different person in a different context telling me the same thing. That's, so that's the job. Again, it goes back to that's the job. It's like mining your own personal experiences to inject them into story as best mm-hmm. as you can. Because that gives authenticity to, to anything you, you work on. So anyway, I worked on Lee, with Lee. And um, she helped me do that. So I my personal pitch and, you know, my personal story. And then 
she told me to go to scripts and scribes and listen to all of the reps interviews mm -hmm. and and she was like you know you don't want to cast a wide net you want to pick the people that you think you respond to that you connect with and uh who you think you have something in common with that you think can understand your vision and so i did that and i picked my four or five or whatever they were after listening to i don't know maybe a dozen interviews and I went out to the meetings and, and I got a manager and, and, and being in the Fox writers program helped mm -hmm. because everyone that I met with understood that just to be frank that, you know, I was probably going to be working and it was probably going to be an easy 10%. Right. You know, so that, that helped being in the Fox writers program. But again, if you ask a hundred different people, how they got broke in, you'll get a hundred different stories, right? You know, the fellowships are not the only way in. You know, there are a lot of people who go the assistant route, which can also be tough. A lot of people sometimes have a career writing in other formats, mm -hmm. written books, and they, 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 you know, they're able to translate that into writing for television, adapting their own work or whatever. There are, um, you know, there's emerging platforms that, that, that weren't really up and running the way they are now that I think are really valuable, like ScreenCraft and Coverfly and Roadmap Writers. I'm seeing a lot of people use those platforms with great success. You know, you, you set up a, a profile, you upload some scripts, you enter some contests, you get feedback, you, you know, like the more you, more, the better you do in, in contests, the, the more attention, the higher your profile gets, eventually those organizations have people who reach out to you, mm -hmm. who want to help you get broke, broke, break, you know, get reps and broke, break in. It's part of the, the, the your success is, is their success. That's their business model. So there's that. I highly recommend people look at those platforms. But um, what was the question? Oh, how I got my reps. So yeah, it was basically a combination of, of having some heat, you know, having a, a job very likely in my near future, which made you know it easy for reps to see that you know it was going to be an easy ten percent for them. Um, and and working with Lee, you know, she you know once she thought I was ready, uh, she made some of those early meetings happen. I've since been with I'm with different reps now but mm -hmm. but um but you know those guys were great at the time and and I, my needs have evolved and i've sort of moved on to other things but i think the way to get reps is you're right it's super hard but having some kind of heat and that could be so many different things meaning getting into a fellowship it could be right. winning a contest it could be just having this ridiculously great spec that no one's ever heard of sure breakthrough which is honestly kind of hard because the, the 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 market is so saturated that it almost doesn't it's almost not about the the amazing spec it's all it's a combination of things it's it's that but it's also like relationships and you know again going back to the Two writers are exactly the same. One has 
so let's just say they have almost the identical script, right? But one writer is writing in obscurity and the other writer has been networking and building their tribe and, and meeting people and going out on Twitter and taking coffee meetings and, and, and the, the same, same, almost the same script, but the, guess what? That second person is probably going to break through because they're making the effort to bridge the gap and make themselves known to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it is, it is a very personal business. As they say, it's yeah. not what you know, it's who you know, but it's obviously a little bit of both because you it's have a little to, bit of both. Sure. Right. Yeah, but yeah. if you have one and not the other, I think you're going to have problems. Yeah. It's, it's going to be more and, difficult. And, and, and none of this, and none of this is like, like absolutes. None, sure. you know, these, you know, these are just general, you know, trends. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would be remiss as having on the vice chair of the Latino Writers Committee of the WGA mm -hmm. talking about diversity in the industry sure. and, and what it's yeah. like being a Latinx writer yeah. in Hollywood. So yeah. maybe you can give us a little bit about the state of diversity yeah. in the industry and, and specifically Latinx. Because the, the, the push towards diversity is good. We, we know that there's a lack of, of, of sure. diverse voices uh, uh, and has been for some time. Mm -hmm. uh, coming from, you know, obviously an Asian perspective, an Asian American perspective, um, I look at it like the, the demographic that I think is the most underrepresented based on population. If you just look at the numbers, yeah. is yeah. the Latin community in, yeah. in both uh, individuals working in the industry behind the scenes and also just in terms of the programming you know, for them, you know, with a, a Latin, you know, sure. and not just Spanish language program, I'm talking about, you know, um, uh, you know, English language programming on, on major networks. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, diversity in the industry and, and specifically as it relates to um, the Latin X community. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a complex issue. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think that I think that there's a lot of work to be done across the board for all the underrepresented groups. <clears throat> you know, where everyone, every, all of the underrepresented groups have their own, their issues and their struggles, and the industry has a lot of work to do in order to sort of <clears throat> rectify the you know the sins of the past in terms of just equity inequality in hiring in a room in you know in leadership positions in terms of specifically with the latinx community uh you're right we are we are just strictly speaking in terms of the data and there's lots of um different sources for data uh you know the wga does their reports uh usc has come out with some significant reports over the last few years. Uh, there's a group called the Think Tank, Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, which does a lot of data parsing as well. Um, but so if you just strictly talk about the data, just looking at the data, you know, Latinx people, Latinos are basically 20% of the US population, thereabouts, roughly. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the the hiring percentages, just like just in television alone, we're we're just cl closely getting to about nine percent parity with the rest of the country's population. 
which is insane because in, in the town where this all takes place, the population's 50%, basically. Los Angeles is like just, you know, demographically 50% Latino. So you're in, in, you know, we're in this town where we're 50% Latino, we're in this country where we're 20% Latino, and within the industry and television alone, we're, we haven't broken 9% in terms of hiring, mm-hmm. people hired and working in television. So th- that's a really dismal, dismal and abysmal stat. But I think things are changing. I think that um, there is a, an awareness, obviously, now of just not Latinos, but just like uh, people of color and underrepresented, upper-represented groups, women, LGBTQ, um, people with disabilities. Mm-hmm you know, um, older writers. So there's a big push and I think it's changing and people are, are, are working hard. The guild is working hard on these issues. Um, there's, you know, groups with this committees within the guild working really hard on industry wide changes. There are committees within the guild specifically for each of these underrepresented groups. There's a Latino writers committee. There's a black writers committee. Uh, LGBTQ, women's, so on and so forth, Asian, Muslim, indigenous. I know I'm missing a few, a couple. Uh, Older Writers Committee. Um, But in in each of those groups are trying to deal with issues within their own communities and and put together programming to help move the needle. Like the Latino Writers Committee itself, we do showrunner meet and greets, we do executive meet and greets, we do panels on subject matters that we hope will get Latinos in front of more decision makers and to, you know, get them jobs, you know, help them sort of like make those, we're not a hiring uh, guild, but like we, we at least try to increase the opportunities for those, for the potentials, potentiality of hiring. So a lot of machinery in the works, but personally and anecdotally, it's tough. And I think part of the problem is that within the Latino community, there are a lot of different, different variations of what it means to be Latino. You know, there's Afro-Latino, there's Asian-Latino, there's Mexican versus Puerto Rican, there's, there's Cuban versus Dominican, there's not versus like they're adversarial, but just they're different. You know, they, they, we all share a lot of the same issues historically uh, but we're from different regions of the world with different cultures. And, and that's tough because there's no one size fits all Latino show that will speak to each of those communities. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of variations. Right. It's the same so, within uh, the Asian, yeah, you know, sure. commun- Asian American community. Yeah. So when you look at a show like one day at a time, you might have some people that are like that are like I'm not Cuban. That show's not for me. Um, but it, that's a valid point. But also, I feel like we should support each other, and maybe there needs to be more of that. You know, we're not a monolith, but we need to find a. There's there needs to be some way of uh, coming to a place where we can celebrate our our cultural differences and have unity. And I think. 
that's part of the community's struggle. And I think it's part, I think that's part of how like the industry sees us, like they don't understand the nuances. And so they don't address the nuances. Like I think the industry's like, okay, we have our one Latino show on, they should be happy. But there's so much more to, there's so many flavors of that community that can be addressed. And, and, and you know, so we need more shows with more perspectives Asian, Afro, you know, Afro-Latino, Asian, all the different, all indigenous, like they need, they all need to be represented. And I think that's changing, but it's tough. It's hard because sometimes you're, 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 you're the one person in the room and you're the sort of the ambassador for all Latino experiences, you know, like um, I've anecdotally heard, heard stories of people being hired on a show that's about a Cuban American family and they're Mexican. And so they're expected to, to know all the ins and outs nuances of a cultural nuances of a Cuban family. Right. And it's different. It's not the same. So though, you know, those it's about education and, and that's what the, the, we're trying to do at the guild. We're trying to do within the committees at the guild and, and sort of educate stakeholders in, in, in those nuances. And, and also if I had, if I had to identify the biggest bottleneck, I think to um, facilitating the change that needs to happen is that there aren't enough people of color in decision-making mm. positions, executives, you know, there are all these great programs and pipelines for writers so there's a big glut of writers, people who want to be writers and not enough jobs, but there's not enough, there's no programs uh, that I know of, I could be wrong, for executives, who, people who want to go down the executive track that could really make a big difference. Like more people of color, more people from underrepresented groups, more women, more LGBTQ people, more people of color, more Asians, more black, more Hispanic, uh, Latino, you know, the more we have diversity on an executive level, the more shows will get greenlit and the more understanding of the need for those shows and the nuances within the cultures that those shows within represented in, in those shows. That's really for me, the big, the big, you know, the thing that needs to change the most, because there's plenty of writers, <laughs> believe me, there's, within just within the Latino writers committee alone, there's hundreds of Latino writers, mm -hmm. you know, and they, we're, we're not, we're not staffing them enough. There's not enough shows for them to be on, it seems. So there's that. And I think the other thing as a person of color and a, and a, and a Latinx person is that yes, absolutely, I wanna write about a Latin show. I wanna write Latin characters. There need to be more of them, 100%. But also like sometimes we're only seen that way. Like, you know, just you're, you're Latino, you should be on a Latino show. I'm like, okay, fine, but I wanna write Star Trek. Right. <laughs> you know, and I wanna write, you know, I wanna be on, you know, a Marvel show or whatever, you know, like, I think, yes, absolutely, you know, it's good to hire us and to, you know, to, to write our stories and we, we should be the ones writing our stories, but we're also like, we grew up in the United States. <laughs> you know, I know what, you know, I have, I, I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. You know, I, um, 
went to college in New York. I went to another college in Boston University. I've traveled the world. Uh, I can contribute. If a show needs me to contribute, I can contribute my Latin perspective, but I can also write You're a about spaceships. Yeah, I can write about spaceships and lasers sure. too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so there's that. And you're so that I've used this example before, but I remember hearing Eric LaSalle, who played Dr. Benton on ER for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. He specifically went out for that role and he loved, he really wanted that role more than, than others because not because he was a black doctor, but because he was a doctor who happened to be black. Like his, his, right. his, you know, ethnicity really didn't play that much into the character. He was a character who was a doctor, period. Yeah. You know, and I think what you're saying is that you are a writer who happens to be Latino, which means you have that, you know, obviously that perspective, but also yeah. you are first and foremost a writer. And I think that that you just bring a different perspective to it, but also you're first and foremost a writer. So, you know, like yeah. writing on a Star Trek, you, you bring that Latin perspective, but ultimately it's a sci-fi show. And, you know, so anyway, yeah. um, uh, there's, there's more I want to cover, but I know, uh, you know, time-wise. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can stick around to answer just a couple more questions on yeah. the After Show on Patreon? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, this was great. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff. I do have a few more questions for you, but, you, you know, yeah. actually there's a lot more questions for you, so we'll have to have you back on. But uh, we covered a lot of good stuff. So cool. th thanks for coming on today. Yeah, okay. thank you. This is super fun. I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of the show. I appreciate uh, the podcast and, and I've, I've been for a while. So I was really surprised and pleased that you reached out to me. So this is super cool. I think if, if, if to give a parting thought, I, th yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I think for young writers, the thing to remember is like is tenacity and, and look, this is one of the hardest gigs to get. I, I think someone told me it was harder than, than professional sports. It may be, which might, might be true. So I, I think the most the most important thing is is tenacity. Sticking stick to it, like don't you know don't don't shut off the the stove before the pot begins to boil. You know, mm -hmm. it, it'll begin to boil. You know, just to give it another minute and you'll get there. So it's tenacity, stick to itiveness, and, and longevity. So you got to figure out a way to stay in the game as long as you can, support yourself, pay your rent, and you know try to work in, in get a job here in town somewhere in the zip code of television mm -hmm. meaning yes if you have to drive an uber drive that uber if you have to work at trader joe's do it don't be um there's no shame in that but if the second you can get a job at a desk you know as someone's assistant mm -hmm. or as a researcher on a true crime show do it because then you're at least in the zip code yeah and you never know where it's going to lead yeah. And you've always got to be working on your craft, whatever that means for you, like get, be better, learn the things you don't know. That's really important. And, and be a hum, good human being and, and get, put yourself out there. You've got to meet people. You've got to interact with people. There's no excuse. Twitter is huge. Now writer Twitter is like amazing, you know, taking a class, on script anatomy will introduce you to people like just meet people. You've mm -hmm. got to meet people and get out there. And, and cause you'll never, you, you're not going to hear the job or get hired if you're in a bubble. Right. Right. Yeah. 
and follow uh, Jorge on Twitter. It's at Rivera G three thousand. That's right. Uh, and you're on Facebook. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jorge Rivera dot screenwriter. Yeah. So that's your uh, ID on on, on yep. Facebook. Um, so thank you again, Jorge. Yeah. Um, for the extended conversation with uh, Jorge, be sure to check out the after show talk on Patreon. That's patreon.com scripts and scribes. And if you have any questions about the craft or business of writing, you could send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. Uh, there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.